0: On this episode of Pilots' Discretion, we're joined by flight instructor and former Air Force pilot Tom Curran. He talks about learning to fly the right way, what it was like to fly the B-1 bomber, and engine failures. Pilots' Discretion starts right now. Welcome, pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. Remember to visit sporties.com slash podcast for today's show links and complete archives, and send your comments to podcast at sporties.com. May is Learn to Fly Month at Sporties, a month long focus on flight training. And you can find all our articles, videos, quizzes, and product specials at sporties.com slash learn to fly month. That theme, of course, carries over to pilots' discretion. So today I am joined by Tom Curran. He is an active flight instructor and an experienced AOPA Air Safety Institute seminar presenter, so we'll definitely be talking about flight training. But Tom has a long and varied aviation career, including time flying both the F-15 and the B-1 in the Air Force, and a stint as an airport planner. We will talk about all of that. Tom, welcome to Pilot's Discretion.
1: Thanks, John. Glad to be here.
0: As I mentioned, it's Learn to Fly month at Sporty, so let's talk about learning to fly. You've been a flight instructor for many years. You've flown a huge variety of airplanes. You've taught seminars. So you've seen a lot of different sides of the training world. What is one tip you wish you could tell every new student pilot as they set out? Don't give up.
1: It's not, you know, I think we as an industry, we do a good job of of convincing folks that it's easy to learn to fly. Uh, you know, because that assuages their fear somewhat where they're embarking on such a significant event you know and again kind of speaking to the the crowd that's primarily focused on becoming a professional pilot out there um you know it it regardless of what you read it's 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 a challenge it's difficult and it, it's going to be an emotional journey as well as a financial uh burden for a lot of folks uh there'll be some frustrations there'll be some joys but the rewards are enormous and i think you know when we look at the historic dropout rate for folks learning to fly across the board it's it's kind of disheartening to see such high numbers you know in the 70 and 80 percent um some of that i think is the result of just sort of unrealistic expectation management when people you know want to start learning to fly for whatever reason um but you know again i think as an industry you know we've done a good job of convincing people that you know if if your if your goal is to sit in the left seat of a an airliner, I mean, it's, it's worth it, but, you know, expect it to, you know, to have some challenges. And I think most people that are endeavoring to learn to fly are the kind of folks that are seeking that challenge, you know? So again, the bumps in the road are not, they're, they're, they're just, they're speed bumps, you know, they're not walls. So there's a lot of help out there to get through them. Don't give up.
0: That's great advice. I think the challenges of feature, not a bug, uh, we see, our flight school at Sporties, Our dropout rates close to zero, and a lot of that's just that expectations management you, you mentioned is being clear up front about the time commitment, the work involved, the ups and downs. Yes, the money part as well. But most people I see, uh, if you have an honest conversation about that, they they rise to the challenge. That's part of the joy of learning to fly.
1: Well, it is, you know, and, and again, I've it, like a lot of guys, you know, of a certain age. I mean, I've advanced past the the hardcore, and again. It, I'll make comments that sound like I'm disparaging the flight training industry. And that's not my intent. I'm not indicting it. Um, I'm just observing it. And based on my experience with it and living with it, Um, you know, I have sort of evolved away from the hardcore day to day uh, pilot production type of flight training activity that's going on today for, for good reasons. So I'm more of an observer than a participant, but I'm very much surrounded by it and impacted by it. I mean, I've kind of niched myself into where I think my experience uh, is valued in terms of what people are trying to do with flying. But, you know, plus balance about, you know, with what I enjoy about flying. And I love teaching straight level climbs turns and descents and, and uh, radio stuff. And I did that, you know, hardcore for the first several hundred hours of my career as a civilian instructor. And now I sort of niched myself into the let, let me fly with you and help you through what you think your issues are and make you more comfortable flying and help keep you motivated Um, and, you know, transition type of training more than, you know, setting someone up for their their check rides. Um, But the point to all that dissertation is, you know, the, the, the instructors themselves obviously play a huge, huge role in, in keeping people motivated, uh, marching towards that goal, as does the organization they may be training, you know, with And certainly we've had an explosion of flight training companies, collegiate commercial flight training providers out there. The the options for folks today are just, you know, there are many, many, many out there. And before you commit to, you know, signing your name to a check and uh, paying one of them, you know, I hope these guys are, you know, doing their homework and, you know, doing some research and talking to folks about where... They might like to try, especially with you know some of the ab type of programs.
0: So on that topic, you mentioned the role of a flight instructor, which is critical. What makes a flight instructor effective? Is it the curriculum, the people skills, their flying skills? What What should I look for if I am trying to size up both the flight school but also an indi- individual flight instructor?
1: So it, it's all the above, really. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> I hate using the term the whole person concept, but I don't have a better term for it. But yeah, first off, I mean, you know, regardless of which way you 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 opt to pursue your career, and again, I'm talking kind of specifically to the the person on a professional pilot track, um, you may feel like you know you're locked into a contract with no room to maneuver, and you're at the you're at the the whims of the the flight training organization in terms of who you fly with and all that kind of stuff, um, and that's really not. case necessarily i mean if you're assigned to a flight instructor and over a period of time and through a series of of encounters or events you just determine that it's just not working for you um, there's nothing says that you can't seek to change flight instructors and of course a lot of these schools especially the ones that are operating under an faa approved we call them the part 141 schools i mean Those organizations are set up to monitor and track your progression, and if they think that your issues stem from, uh, you know, a a, a called a mismatch of personalities with your instructor, I mean, they'll endeavor to get you with the right instructor and get you moving forward. So, the curriculum itself, you know, in theory, we're all training to the same standards out there—the ACS standards—and you know, those are those are pretty objective. Um, Every school. Well, forget the school, whether you're operating as a part 141 school, you're training in 141 school, for example, a big collegiate program or one of the big commercial operators, you know, like ATP. I mean, these guys have an approved syllabus that if you can, you know, if you can if you can meet the objective criteria there, you'll progress nicely. Um, You're just training under part 61. I mean, they're not as structured per se, but the quality instruction is not directly related to the fact that it's part 61 versus part 141 so um but you know we're all training to the same standards regardless of which pipeline you come through you you, you can look at the private pod acs and the commercial pod and so forth and it tells you exactly what you know the expectation is from you by that examiner on your check ride so if you're struggling to meet those things you know again maybe the curriculum maybe how it's presented to you it may be how the instructor is interacting with you and it, it may be the environment itself and one thing I'm a big advocate for um, sort of at my own my own cost a little bit is, you know, I, I learned to fly in several sort of different segments. I mean, when I got in the Air Force, I had been flying for several years. I, I had a thousand hours and I had been a CFI for several years, so I had a leg up, I guess, compared to other folks walking in the door, but um, you know, the one thing that, that, that I took from my experience in that civilian flight training program um, was the fact that for me to succeed, that where I was at my age, at my, you know, my level of uh, comprehension with a pretty difficult set of topics, um, I really benefited from being in an organization where I was surrounded by the instructors, obviously, and students that wanted to live, eat, breathe, and sleep flying. And so even when we weren't flying, we were talking about flying. And if we weren't talking about flying, you know, there was something wrong. Um, And I think that that really helped kind of fuel my love for flying, uh, built some tremendous, you know, relationships that, you know, have lasted through the decades. Man, I am old, aren't I? Um, So that environment is important as well. So again, the curriculum, the instructors, the environment, um those things are all important and for someone looking to enter our world they really need to consider that they've got so many options out there and, and don't again don't rush into something and then regret it later
0: you had an interesting experience those decades ago when you learned to fly you failed your private pilot check ride under some <laughs> slightly shady circumstances i should say you've written about this uh, for airfax regardless of the reasons What's your advice for persevering through a disappointment like that? If a listener is worried about a failed check ride or what might happen, what would you tell them?
1: Well, I'd say it, it's, <laughs> where's the number for that bus driving school? Um, no, I mean, those that have and those that will. Um, you know, in fact, if I can keep my thoughts going here, I'll come to another little bit in a sec, but Expect to fail. I mean, and failure is an option. In fact, if it's, it, I would say it's very rare—not very rare—but it's it's unlikely that you're going to get through a flight training program without some hiccups. Um, not everybody has a good day. Um, certainly, you know, as you progress through a, a syllabus and uh, you're marching towards that phase check or that check ride. I mean, if everything goes perfectly smooth. I, as an instructor, am almost starting to wonder about what's going to happen when something bad happens. Because you know, as, as 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 hard as the instructors endeavor to uncover those things, and as good as the syllabus the syllabi are at, you know, making you demonstrate, you know, the required performance, uh, or, you know, the requirement to handle certain situations, obviously emergencies and whatnot. But you can't cover everything. And at some point, you're going to encounter something that maybe your instructor didn't go with you. You didn't practice. You didn't train for. You haven't studied, and there you have it. Hopefully, that's not on your check ride. But uh, so, again, expect to to not fail, but expect to have some plateaus, some steps backwards. I mean, again, um, if your if if your potential flight training provider sort of promises that everything will go, you know. Up at a forty-five degree angle, um, they're probably not being realistic. You're going to have some bad days. We all have had them. Um, that's and you learn usually from that adversity uh, lessons that you'll never forget. So the uh, the idea that you know you'll never have a problem, the smartest guy in the world out there is going to find challenges in flying, and that's that's what makes it enjoyable. So the good news is most instructors, the good ones, and you know. Let, let's hope that most of the guys that you deal with are good instructors. Men and women out there are committed to doing it. Um, they're going to make that apparent to you, and they're going to help you get through it. And again, the peer support out there is very important as well. I think the first time you you make a bad landing, or you you know you call Buster right for something, and you go back into the into the ops room or the school, or the hangar, or wherever you're flying out of, and You'll figure out that you weren't the only one that did that. Uh, Good instructors are always willing to share their stories with you. And trust me, all of us have had bad days. So don't give up, you know, put it behind you, um, move on, relish it later. It'll be a great story later. You can write up for Airfax Journal, Um, but just expect it to happen. And it's kind of funny. Again, I, I'm I'm very fortunate. I had a pretty good leg up on my experience when I got in the Air Force, but that actually put a lot of pressure on me because you know the Air Force knows when you come in what your background is. That's obviously part of your selection process. But come in as a relative experienced you know civilian pilot, you can guess how they treat you. I mean, they're poking their mm-hmm. finger in your chest from day one, and uh, not bragging by any means. But I made it all the way through. Back in the, those days, seems a little long ago. Um, I made it all the way through pilot training when it was a complete year course without failing a ride. And uh, on my second-to-last ride, they flew me with my squadron commander. And I already knew what my assignment was going to be. I knew I was a distinguished graduate. I knew I was doing well, and you know, I was very, I was very happy with. You know how I'd been treated, and I, I worked hard, and it was a difficult process. But I I knew that my chances of getting what I wanted were pretty high. So on the second to last ride, they flew me with my squadron commander, and we went up and just did some typical air work in the T thirty eight. And as we're coming back into to the airbase, excuse me, which was Laughlin down in uh, lovely Del Rio, Texas, there was a reporting point that we had to check in with the control tower, visual reporting point. And it was a a bend in a river that looked like George Washington's head, apparently. And that's where you reported. And I'd been over it several times up to that point. And I'm in the front seat of this airplane, and the commander suddenly starts talking to me about just nonsensical things that had nothing to do with flying. And course we're moving along at 300 knots our traffic pattern and then i get to the point oh man i'm supposed to call george's head and he immediately took the jet and he said do you know where you're at i said uh looking for george's head and he said i have the airplane and he rolls the airplane inverted and he points out the top of the canopy towards the ground and we're right over george's head and he said you missed it so we got back in landed and he failed me on the ride because I had missed George's head. And at that point, I was pretty distraught. So the reason it I found out later was in that squadron, um, they had a policy that nobody made it through the program without busting a ride. So they had engineered something for me to fail, and uh, it, it worked. My ego took a big hit. But anyway, it happens. You'll get through it.
0: Tom, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about some more of your Air Force days.
1: Earn all your pilot ratings and keep your flying skills sharp with Sporty's Pilot Training Plus. This all-inclusive membership unlocks Sporty's complete library of award-winning video courses so you can learn anywhere you have your phone, tablet, or laptop. For one annual fee, you get access to over $1,500 in courses, a smart investment in your flying career. Plus, enjoy free shipping every day of the year at sporties.com and apply for one of our three annual flight training scholarships. Learn more at sporties.com pilot training. Now, back to pilot's discretion.
0: We are back with Tom Curran, who had a long career in the Air Force, a path that may be of interest for some aspiring pilots as well. Tom, you described your career as, quote, non-standard. Going from single-seat fighter pilot to a bomber squadron commander is definitely not a career path you can plan on, end quote. Why is that, and and what did you learn from that?
1: Well, when I, got, I joined the Air Force, I was... I was Sort of handicapped by my age, I had a, a career prior to joining the Air Force, and when I got in, I realized you know my, my goal at that point was to be a fighter pilot, uh, and specifically, I wanted to, to be just air to air. I I, I disparaged anybody that dropped bombs <laughs> in those days, <laughs> um, to my at, at my peril. Um, so I, I I I had a very singular focus on what I wanted. I mean, I was driven by the fact that I want to be an f-15 pilot and uh, you know to include you know posters of it on my wall and models of it in my room and all that kind of stuff I was, I was kind of I don't say obsessed but that's that was my goal um, and so when I get, when I did get into pilot training I was I was accepted right at the age limit you had to be in those days you had to be no later older than 27 and a half your first day of pilot training. And as for a civilian coming off the street like I was, that meant you had to start the application process a year prior. So I actually met an Air Force recruiter at 26 years, five months, and two weeks. And so I had two weeks left to decide if I, I want to try and get in the Air Force. And that's because I had taken my time to come to the realization that maybe I could do that after all. So uh, I approached it that way. I was, I was fortunate again to uh, to earn an f-15 out of pilot training my first choice um, and in those days it wasn't unusual you'd get one tour in an airplane in a fighter and or whatever your major weapon system was and, and then they would they would move you to something different either a training position or you know uh, something relative to supporting guys on the ground jTAC terminal air traffic or terminal air controllers attack controllers excuse me um, there were a lot of other jobs outside the cockpit that you wanted to fly that they try to put you through and then let you back in your airplane later. Um, well, again, just through a combination of, of timing and, and luck, I ended up getting to fly the F 15 um, three tours in a row. So I started flying it at Luke as a school. And I, my first tour was at uh, Kadena Air Base in okinawa i was the first of the two-year bachelors there so all the guys ahead of me had been 18 month guys i was a two-year guy being single which guaranteed me a follow-on after that and i my follow-on was back to hallman air force base in new mexico and then again through a series of events i ended up going from there up to alaska and flying it again at elmendorf because i was part of a cadre that started a bigger combat training exercises up in alaska called cope thunder and then after that, they sent me down to be a, an instructor pilot at the F-15 schoolhouse at Tyndall Air Force Base. So that was a pretty extensive period of flying the F-15. Um, the problem with it was, you know, after pulling nine Gs for so many years, my neck really started to bark at me, and uh, the sustained high G environment was getting pretty, pretty, pretty tough on my body. So through a variety of 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 circumstances, I ended up being grounded from the F-15, but still being qualified to fly something else. And because I was at that by that point, I was pretty much everything you could be in the F-15 as far as qualifications. I was a flight lead, obviously, mission commander, package commander. I was an instructor pilot, and I was also an examiner, check airman. We call them CFEs in the Air Force, Stan guys. So I was pretty well qualified. I had a pretty good record. Um, I'm such a humble guy, you can tell. So (laughs) uh, when I was grounded from flying fighters, they said, okay, well, let's assume you could fly anything else. What would that be? And I said, (laughs) AC-130, because it had a gun, or several guns, and it blew stuff up. And they said, well, we don't want you in the AC-130. Pick again. And uh, literally on a whim, I can't put any simpler than that I just sort of thought out loud and said let's see b1's got afterburners and a stick it doesn't have a gun doesn't okay I'll take it b1 and uh, lo and behold several months later I was informed that I'd been tra- I was transitioning to the b1 and I think the reason that that, that wasn't just because I was such a great guy at that point, the B-1 was just coming off, we call the PSYOP, which is basically the the plan that put us on nuclear alert, along with missiles and subs. And uh, the B-1 was coming out of that plan and was starting to, re- and of course, the weapons that it employed were pretty significant. And the airplane was flown a certain way and, and employed a certain way. Um They were just coming off of that plan and switching to conventional, in other words, bombs, regular sort of bombs. These weren't uh, GPS guided, these were straight, still dumb bombs that you had to basically plan to fly over the target or near it and release them and then escape the blast. Uh, It was a great time to get in that airplane because now it was being flown the way it was designed to be flown. And at the same time, a lot of younger guys were coming into it. At that point, there were still a lot of initial cadre folks in it, which had come out of other airplanes. And now we're starting to see those guys, you know, retire or move on, and we're getting younger folks coming into the airplane. Um, they opened up the first the first B one weapons school class that just graduated. In fact, my instructor was the first B one weapons school graduate. They paired me up with him. So, and at the end of the day, really, what they were looking for was to get some fighter DNA into the B one community, and I just I just happened to sort of fit the bill. So. It was a difficult transition for me coming from a single seat, you know, air superiority fighter into a four seat bomber. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I took advantage of, of of the opportunity as much as I could. They really wanted me to upgrade instructor plot right away. And I was like, well, I, you know, I barely recognize a B-1 two out of three times. The bus drops me off in front of one. Um, but I also realized there, there was so much going on in the B-1 world at that time, very rapid improvements in, the, in weapon capability um, and you know evolution of the tactics we would use to employ it in a conventional role that, you know, if you weren't an instructor pilot, you wouldn't fly. So I let them kind of shove me into an early instructor upgrade program and p- fortunately paired me up with really smart backseaters, call them wizos. Now they're combat system operators. In those days, they were offensive and defensive system operators and then became weapon system operators but they're really the smartest guys and gals in the B1 the pilots just drive it to the fight it's the folks in the back that really you know have the have the, have the brain power to make this thing work and they paired me up with one of those guys that basically we were hermetically sealed at the hip and uh I learned a lot from them um but then they I, I realized I gotta accept this really instructor move or I'll, I'll i'll languish out here as a aircraft commander so um that was the path and then from then on it was it was just being in the right place at the right time you know we started operating the airplane in combat prior to that point to be one again hadn't been desert storm hadn't really done anything and then there was an uh, there was uh one event called Operation Desert Fox where B-1 actually dropped bombs on the Iraqi Republican Guard. And at that point, the reputation of the airplane just exploded. I mean, it took off, and suddenly we became the most popular airplane in the in the Air Force, and rightfully so. The The, the only problem with that was we, we became so popular that we, we've worn the airplane out. But uh, I, I was kind of long for the ride with that. Uh, I still had to do some of the other... Leave the cockpit and come back again later, type of stuff. So they sent me to Central Command to kind of fill a joint square. And then when I came back from that, they made me the uh, the operations officer for one of the B one squadrons at Ellsworth Air Force Base, uh, 37th Bomb Squadron, the Tigers. And then later I was commander of the other B one squadron up there, which is the 34th Bomb Squadron, Thunderbird. So a very non-standard ride for a guy like me. And it was, wouldn't have been possible without the tremendous people in the B-1 community. I mean, they had to accept the fighter pilot, <laughs> which, which didn't, didn't sit well with some of them, but they didn't, you know, they, they kind of tolerated me and um, I'm forever grateful that they did that.
0: The B-1 has such a cult following among aviation enthusiasts, such a unique airplane. What's the most interesting fact about that that you learned? What, what would surprise a typical GA pilot who's maybe just seen it fly over at an air show?
1: Well, I used to, when I first got into it. I mean, again, I was not prepared for how complex the airplane was. I mean, you could look at it and go, "Hey, it's a big airplane." Yeah, well, um, and, a, and people still do this, which you know, I've learned. I, I don't get upset anymore, but they they call it you know, it's referred to as a big fighter. Well, no, it really isn't a big fighter. I mean, it's more like a supersonic Cadillac, but hmm. the capability that airplane has is incredible. And of course, and, and some of it, I, you know, I can't share with you, but, um, definitely it's arguably, uh, probably the second most complicated flying machine on the planet, you know, the uh, at that time, at least after the space shuttle, I mean, the systems in that airplane are incredibly complex. Um, you know, everything about it is 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 very focused on it accomplishing the mission it was designed to do, which was to literally penetrate Soviet air defenses low level very fast and 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 survive and uh, hopefully get somewhere safe. You know, after that. Um, 477 thousand pound airplane that goes supersonic um, it'll wake you up <laughs>
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the early uh, I won't say abuse that I got but the good-natured kidding I got from you know from experience b1 folks when I got in it was you know um, you know again having done air to air only for so long and thinking I was all, all there is. Uh, my eyes were watered by this airplane. I mean, I'm, I was used to a 1.5, 1.6 hour sortie with, unless we were doing no-fly zone type of stuff in the Gulf. And now I'm flying an airplane where the shortest mission is eight hours and you do everything that the airplane can do. So every mission you're flying, you're refueling. Every mission you fly, you're flying low level. Every mission you fly, you're doing high altitude stuff, you know, an electronic warfare range. I mean, in the... the you know, you've got four people in it that all have to maintain proficiency in their jobs, and you've got incredibly complex and and capable equipment that has to be, you know, exercised. Um, when you look at it, it's a beautiful airplane, and you know, when you kind of peel back the skin and, and look inside of it at the systems that it has to allow it to have that capability, it's, it's incredible. There's a lot of headaches learning to fly an airplane. Um, very intense training it's a lot of hours in the simulator before you let you touch the airplane um, and again the capabilities the first time uh, they took me out at night again tough fighter pilot you have flown low level yeah i've flown low level a lot in fighter don't want to fight down here but it's fun to fly well the b1 was designed to fight down there and they would take you out in a pitch black night over the big bend area of texas and using the systems on the airplane Basically, point the airplane at the ground, and you're along for the ride, monitoring stuff, obviously. But you're going downhill at 0.8 Mach and expecting the airplane to level off at you know a couple hundred feet above the ground, and you can't see anything out the front. That's a that's a testament to the airplane, but it's also a testament to how professional the folks that fly it are. I mean, and and, and to be good at that proficient at that and combat capable at that is a is an incredible uh, thing to experience. But to answer your question directly, what should you know? It looks cool. It makes noise. Um, I wish it would hang around in the inventory and be loved by Congress and have everything funded to keep it alive. But, you know, we've opted to, to do that, you know, to spend that money on other programs and, and let that airplane go away. Uh, hopefully, folks will get a chance to see it before it's, you know, in a museum somewhere.
0: Unbelievable. Tom, we always like to close these episodes with a lightning round we call Ready to Copy. So I'll ask you some questions. I've got a bunch of them on a variety of topics here, and you give me your short five, six, eight-word answer. Are you ready to copy? Sure. C-R-A-F-T, I'm ready. So it's, all... <laughs> it's on my pad. What does the military teach in flight training better than the typical civilian flight school?
1: Oh, man. I, yeah, I thought you'd get around that. I would say you know, first off, it's a it's a very stressful environment. I don't care how <laughs> the recruiters try to sell it. Um, but I think that the big focus again is on safety and, and system knowledge and emergency procedures. I mean, um, my Air Force training in those respects has saved me, not just in my military training, but my civilian training. I mean, they're very, 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 very focused on using all the resources you have available, single pot, crew resource, you know, inside, outside the jet, whatever's available to you, to, you know, to get your airplane back safely on the ground, if if you've had something, you know, which makes sense considering that we're flying combat airplanes that may get holes in them, and uh, the focus on, on on safety, handling emergencies, is just it's just a constant. Every time you fly, you're going to spend a lot of time talking about that stuff.
0: What is the most useless maneuver in the private pilot ACS? You mentioned <laughs> earlier, we, we all have the same curriculum we train towards. Maybe not all of them are incredibly important maneuvers. What would you strike if you could get one?
1: Eights on pylons. <laughs> Next question.
0: I would agree with that. You've had multiple engine failures during your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from Piper Cherokees to F-15s. Again, you've written about this on Airfax. What is the most important lesson you've taken away from those events?
1: You know, I it, it's I don't of all the t- all the flying I've done, I've been very very fortunate. I mean, I have no credibility whining in the bar about what I've gotten to fly. I, I, I'm very appreciative of the opportunities I've had. So with all the airplanes I've gotten to fly, and, and I'm not done yet, and all the instructors I've flown with, um, I still, whenever something happens in my airplane, I still hear my very first instructor, Mark Learned. He's listening from Sperling Aviation at Boeing Field saying fly the plane. And at the end of the day, I mean, we can, we can, you know, we can package it any way we want, but it comes down to fly the plane. And, uh, you know, the air force adds a little more verbiage. They say, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation and take the appropriate action and land as soon as conditions permit. Well, again, Mark learned said, fly the plane. So (laughs) that's a lot fewer words and a lot easier to remember.
0: Great advice. How about the other side of that? What skill or procedure deserves more attention during flight training? We've talked about the ACS you'd like to, to kill. How about something that we should spend a little more time focusing on in flight training? Wow, that's a... And you only can, can pick one. We don't have 45 minutes. I know. i say I've <laughs> already
1: used my 45 minutes. Um, boy, I think it all goes back to the, to the basics of, of, you know, stick and rudder in general i mean more right rudder understanding the four forces in flight regardless of what you're doing and relationships between you know all those you know pitch and power uh flight control inputs i mean i I fly with guys now that are they're commercial pilots and they never take their feet off the floor like how did you get this far um do you enjoy slipping and skidding an airplane around i mean I mean, I, that's not a maneuver, but that's fundamental to successfully and properly doing anything we do in an airplane. So I'll leave it at that.
0: I've seen you present on this topic before. What is the correct frequency for air-to-air chatting among pilots? And tell me <laughs> why it's not fingers.
1: Come at one twenty-two seven. One twenty two seven five.
0: five. The uh, yeah, the if you cruise along. Listen to one two three point four five, and you'll hear a lot of stuff. But uh, that's actually not the correct frequency. Yes. Yeah, it's
1: one twenty two seven five, and, and you know, I to their credit, there is a there is a a cadre, I guess, of schools in the Seattle area, which is where I live. Um, I think. You know, in order to survive, they got together and they fly in a very specific area, not unfortunately where I fly or where, where we fly in our sort of practice area. And they have, you know, come up with a coordinated slash, um, you know, they've all agreed to use 12275 because they all fly in this one area. And there's a very prominent geographic reference. It's a lake out there that they use and they're actually very good at it. Um, but that's not universal. I mean, it's just those guys, they took the initiative to get together and, and said, hey, we're going to be out here together. Let's, let's not run into each other. We'll use 122.75. And uh, I, wish, I wish there were other frequency options that were you know, officially sanctioned and, and people had the, the discipline to use them. But unfortunately, that's, that's not quite there yet.
0: You mentioned uh, Seattle area. What's the most underrated airport in the Pacific Northwest? If I'm flying around there, what's a great GA airport?
1: (laughs) I'd rather tell you which ones I never go to because they're like (laughs) the the Battle of Britain out there. Um, Underrated. Well, I I would say none of them are underrated right now because we have just experienced an explosion in GA activity in this area, And, and a lot of it specifically, you know, flight training. Um, which really, you know, every, every, you know, major airport, I say major, you know, class D airports. we got a bunch of them out here, um, very complex airspace, but there are a few out there that, uh, you know, haven't been discovered yet, I guess by a huge number of people. Um, a couple of those ones called Toledo Carlson airport in Toledo. It's a little bit South of, uh, Olympia, Washington, the capital and, uh, that's not a bad place to go as far as a class, you know, a towered airport, a class D airport. Uh, I fly out of one, but it's, 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 it gets crazy because of flight training activity. So my, my, my favorite kind of undiscovered class D airport in this area would be Olympia airport, KOLM. Great, great service, great air traffic controllers, not so much activity. Um, The big issue in our area, of course, is the complexity of the airspace. We got a lot of stuff here, including a joint base, Lewis-McChord, which is not only a very busy C-17 Air Force base, but also Fort Lewis is a huge aviation base, so lots and lots and lots of helicopters flying.
0: Early in your career, you were involved in airport planning, and as I understand it, one of the Airports you worked on was Telluride in Colorado, which is a unique strip of pavement on the edge of a uh, quite a valley, quite a memorable approach if you've ever flown in there. What was the hardest part of that plan, or the m- most unique challenge of Telluride?
1: Well, that's that. Yeah, boy, I'll tell you, that was my last job. I had, I was um, I didn't know it was going to be my last job, but I I had applied for the Air Force and was waiting to hear, and then they assigned me Telluride. I was one of the initial planners for that. Um, very short story and then uh, but the reason it's significant is of course you know telluride is a huge ski area and it was it's been for quite a while and you know the the ski areas had experienced some you know some some catastrophic injuries with skiers where the only way to get them to you know critical medical care was basically to drive them from Telluride down to like Montrose which is 66 miles or so and uh, they had, they had no real uh, way to, to evacuate anyone quickly with any certainty. You know, getting a helicopter up there in those density altitudes could be challenging even in the winter. So they had tried a couple times to get an airport going. Uh, were unsuccessful f- for whatever reason. And then there was one event. Uh, I don't remember the details, but it, essentially it was a young man that was uh, skiing up there and, you know, had a had a pretty traumatic injury and he ended up passing away before they could get him to the hospital down in again at was Montrose. So at that point they just said, we're, we're gonna do whatever it takes to get an airport up here. So they really shoved and shoved and shoved their way into the limelight with with the FAA to get, you know, to get money to uh to build an airport from scratch up there. Um and of course there's you know enough affluence in that area to help with, you know, their part of the the cost. So we were assigned, my company was hard to do it, and uh, we looked at the options for the sites. They had already shown us what was available. And uh, yeah, that, that 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 Mesa was called Deep Creek Mesa. And uh, I was sent out there to do a site survey for it. And I just kind of, you know, at first they had to tell me how to get to it. When I finally hiked up to it, I kind of laughed because it was not exactly a flat tabletop it was gonna require a huge amount of cut and fill. And when we started getting into the, you know, into the the FAA, you know, airport design requirements, my company's original plan was, we wanted it to be, you know, over 9,000 feet long, obviously for for the obvious reasons, which essentially would have made it like an aircraft carrier with no overruns off each end of that Mesa. Uh, Even to do that, it would have been a huge cut and fill to build up the sides of the slopes of that Mesa off the ends of the runway. Uh, it would have been an enormous, and it still was enormous just to flatten out that Mesa, but this would have made it really, really expensive. And, uh, but we wanted something over 9,000 feet. You know, we had to get uh, Rocky Mountain Airways and Aspen Airways to operate in there. Um, and they're like, no, no, not going to do it unless this, and unless that the design criteria was, was tough to, 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 uh, get to where anyone could fly in there a lot. Um, so eventually it ended up being shortened so that there was thresholds and overruns. And, you know, today's length, I think it's 7,111 feet, uh, which is way shorter than anybody wanted it to be. But at least it's there. And, I mean, that's the critical thing. There is an airport there. And, and again, kudos to the folks at, in Telluride that didn't give up, uh, you know, when the obstacles were pretty glaring out there. And, uh, to be honest, I've never, I've never flown in there. <laughs> I've never landed in there, kind of my bucket list. I don't think my name is on a wall anywhere in there, but I, I, I was one of the guys that did the original layout plan and, and financial feasibility study, that type of thing. So I, I, I'm pretty proud that it got built.
0: Let's go outside aviation for a question to an activity you enjoy fly fishing. Yes. Give me some insight from that world that applies to flying. Something about patience, or artistry, or practice, or mindset, or something. What's a lesson to be learned?
1: Well, I think like flying, you know, it's an art and a science, and uh, we debate that all the time. Um, you don't have to worry about more right rudder right when you're fly fishing, but you know, it's <laughs> it's got its own set of things to consider. I think the challenge of fly fishing, um, you know, on, on a balance, you know, it's it's if and, and trust me, I'm 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 not the best at it. But um, if you do it wrong, it's self-critiquing. And you know, there's nothing wrong with all the other ways to you know other types of tackle you might want to use. But being able to read a river, understanding you know you're hunting a fish, obviously um, targeting a fish that you have to see it all the time. But you know, you've got to understand where the fish are. Are going to be I like and I'm, I like to fish in you know rivers and creeks you know moving water which obviously fly fish in lakes and salt water but um so it really makes you think I mean it makes you focus if you if you do something like fishing to kind of escape you know whatever else is going on in your mind um that really makes you do it you've got to consider everything relative to the environment you're fishing in and you know of course your query your itself um the tackle you use you know the types of fly you're using the line presentation you know how you you know how you work the fly on the water so i just find it really you know it, it, you just get so absorbed in it and uh, again the 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 art part i guess comes from how good you cast it's like flying you're always you're only as good as your last landing well fly fishing you're only as good as your last cast and hopefully there's no one watching you you know and uh, critiquing you but um sounds
0: a lot like a great day at the airport great day of fly fishing that combination of challenge and focus and escape
1: yeah and even if you don't you know i i won't say if you don't catch anything it's okay obviously if you don't catch anything it kind of makes you angry but i mean uh, most of i think hardcore fly fishermen they're just as happy if they're you know if their techniques uh worked out for him as much as did they actually catch a fish. I mean, if a guy can whip out a 70, 80 foot, you know, cast with a fly rod, he's probably pretty happy with himself. And If he caught a fish, that's sort of a bonus.
0: Our last question is always the same on pilot's discretion. You have one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going?
1: Yeah, I I, I know you always do this. Well, actually, <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> for me, it's pretty easy. I owned a 170 for many, many years. drug it around my Air Force career, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of airplanes I love to fly. But um, you know, I got my love of flying from my my dad. My dad was an aeronautical engineer in the FAA. He wasn't a pilot, but he loved flying and exposed me to flying very early on. And la- one of the last flights I took with my dad, I I took him in my 170 from Fairbanks to Seattle. Um. We never got above a thousand feet AGL and I did that with a handheld radio and paper charts. And so I would I would like to relive that flight.
0: Tom, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for listening to
0: Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion.